This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. And welcome to episode 24, another episode here on Unsung Heroes, Stories to Inspire on the Podcast Detroit Network. Our purpose here is to share amazing stories and unique narratives of individuals who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. And we really hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. Um, we've had some really interesting and amazing past episodes. Um, and each uh, person, uh, each group of people that we've talked to have shared their experiences. Each story has its own values and lessons. So I really encourage you to check out our past episodes. Um, you can find us on the website, www.podcastdetroit.com, and look for the show Unsung Heroes. And we're working on our own website as well. And you can follow us on um, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio. And please listen, subscribe, share, and please, please, please leave a review if you can. That would be really helpful. Um, I'm joined here today by my co-host, Calvin Moore. Hey, what's up? Hey, Calvin. It's been a little while. It it has been. Fridays are hard sometimes to get yeah. here to do this. So. I know. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, you. no problem. I'm very tired. So you got to know that I'm truly your friend and love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. For being here. Yes, you owe me. <laughs> and same <laughs> with Jess, too. I know she's kind of tired, too, but she's here today. Hello. There was a podcast uh, meetup yesterday, which I couldn't make, but which these guys Which Jess doesn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Jess is our um, trusty sound engineer. Very happy to have you here. And I'm really excited about our show today. It's um, kind of a third in our installment. Um, We we started a series on um, faith and color. Um, And I don't know if you were actually, Calvin, I'm not sure if you were at the first two. I think. I don't think I was. Yeah. So. Um, so I'm super excited for our guest today, Namira Islam. Hi, Namira. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, just brief introduction, very brief, because I want to spend most of the time having you talk. Um, but to introduce Namira, she's a Bangladeshi American lawyer and graphic designer. Uh, she's based in Michigan, and she's a co-founder and co-director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, also known as Muslim Arc, which is a faith-based racial justice education organization. Her legal background includes work in prisoners' rights litigation, international human rights law, and poverty law. She's written for multiple publications, delivered lectures and trainings throughout the United States, and provided commentary and analysis on identity, current events, and social justice narratives for radio shows, documentary films, and other media worldwide. And you can follow her on Twitter at Namirari, N-A-M-I-R-A-R-I. I'm, as you can see, I'm not really so familiar with Twitter. I don't <laughs> no, know if you spell totally those fine. out. But You're not familiar yeah. with the Twitters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the hashtags. But. So welcome, Namira. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, your bio is amazing. I mean, you've just done amazing i mean just the breadth of experience and um oh, i think thanks. knowledge and uh and you know we've met a few times before and i always mm-hmm. really enjoy <laughs> your posts and spending time with you in person so thank you so much i'm really looking forward to sharing your voice 
No, it's, it's really good to be here. I feel like we always have really great conversations. Yeah. Um, I feel like because I was a psych major in undergrad, so I always kind of wonder about like what would have happened if I had gone down that path instead. So I think it's just oh, always great to talk to talk to you. Who's in the That's field. interesting. Yeah. I was actually pre-law and pre-med when I started oh, undergrad. Wow. So same thing. <laughs> yeah. Hmm, kind of crisscross here. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Maria, tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, we will definitely talk about Muslim ARC, but just the work that you do in general um, and kind of what inspired you to get into this work that centered around social justice and equity, equality, um, and, you know, the, the legal background, also your legal background, just kind of what, what kind of inspired you from a young age to follow this path? Right. I think, you know, recently it's interesting because I was recently asked this question and I realized it goes back further than I first thought. So I feel like when I was first asked this question, like first after we started Muslim Arc and like some of these interviews looking back, I feel like there was this this idea of like starting in college or certain things that you don't really recognize from your childhood as much. Mm-hmm. And then when you start really thinking about it, you're like, wait a second, there was this like seed of this or there was this aspect. And I think for me, like when I think back to it, I really think about my childhood. And I remember actually like every year my mom, there was just like the anniversary of like independence for the mm-hmm. liberation war that she would put up like the speech from Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and the liberation and independence of Bangladesh. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it would just be like this massive speech, you know, and it was in Bangla, the whole thing. But I remember it would just be like every year it would come around and just that's one of my earliest memories of something like you know, marching for independence or protest or, you know, it's this massive crowd. And this was 1971, you know, so it's like mm-hmm. around the time of the civil rights era and all of that. So I think that time period really fascinated me as a kid because I remember growing up and really being just so interested in the life of like Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and like all of that just was very fascinating because I think that time in history was something that I kind of recognized as a kid. So then as I got older, it was like from high school to college, especially is when I went to U of M Ann Arbor for undergrad. So at that point, I was like volunteering in some of like the Detroit schools, like the public schools there versus some of the public schools near Ann Arbor. There was like the difference and the contrast and some of the experiences with young kids who were there. Um, and just like the educational system, you could just see like the funding inequities that were happening mm-hmm. between like the city of Detroit and the suburbs. Um, and then I think the thing that really, because I was undecided when I went into undergrad, I wasn't sure if I want like what I wanted to do after um, undergrad. I knew I didn't want to do engineering. <laughs> My dad was an engineer. I didn't want to do that. Medicine, I was like squeamish about broken bones and stuff like that. <laughs> so I was like, that's not happening. Um, but I was still undecided. And so then I think it was my second, like my sophomore, junior year, um, I was doing a like a clinical program type of thing where we're doing field work um, in forensic psychiatry. So there was this mm. aspect of going out and like working. The place where I ended up going was uh, a place where people were staying who were basically deemed mentally incompetent to stand trial. And so they were staying at this facility. and Oh, was that the forensic center? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So I was there and it just kind of really got me thinking about like mental health, intersection of mental health and race and law. Um, I remember being really um, kind of gutted actually because there was this Muslim, young black Muslim man who was there. And I remember like, you know, when you walk in, like we would do things like play spades, you know, or some people play volleyball or arts and crafts projects. So there were kind of different like activities or very low key kind of activities. And so for some people, you could kind of see that they weren't really fully like with you, right, as you're like working with them and sitting across the table with them or whatever. Um, Other people, though, like they were really present. And 
I think just the idea that somebody committed a crime when they weren't really fully, you know, they were deemed mentally incompetent to stand trial. So it's like clearly their mental state when they committed the crime. But then once you're at the center, like you're being medicated. So all of a sudden it was like you're now sane or you're now there, but you're kind of serving out time for a crime that you did Mm -hmm. when you weren't there. Mm -hmm. And it just started really getting me thinking about it. Um, And I know that there was a few handful of people I can still like see their faces in front of my eyes just like – just there was a sense of feeling trapped like from behind you know like from their face and it just really stuck with me um and i think in general too just like the law fascinated me because my other background is like freelance graphic design which i started in undergrad and it's about this like creativity with like art and like flyers and all that stuff but i think with law it was like this great creativity with ideas and like playing with ideas and playing with um like debate and stuff like that so that's really what got me into law school and then i often like joke about how if anything radicalized me to racial justice and not the other muslim <laughs> type of radicalization um but to racial justice i would say it was like law school just sitting there and like looking at these cases throughout history where you have some of the greatest you know the quote unquote greatest legal minds in you know the nation And they're sitting there kind of making these decisions, deciding that Native Americans can't get property because they're not citizens of this country or that African-Americans can't win a case because they're considered property and not human beings. And I think just the reality of like people around me, other law students not really being affected by these cases or just kind of like, well, this is just the law. This is just our history. You know, we've moved past it. But then seeing some of the current modern day like inequities in the system just really pushed me into trying to look at systemic racism in a different way. And I think just my personal experience with like people of color spaces where there's just so much diversity, but then tension within those spaces like got me into this narrower space of like working primarily in places of people of color, where it's like, what are the relationships between us? And what are some of the places where we're not there for each other in ways that we should be? Interesting. Hmm. Wow. But you, <laughs> yeah. you and I, um, we have very, very similar focuses. <laughs> yeah. Anything that has to do with foci. systemic racism. Uh, did, I say, did I say it? I'm like, is that a word? Foci, right? Foci is yeah. the right yeah. word for it. Okay, <laughs> Loud right. and plural. Yeah. Um, using that vocabulary of yours. Say no, <laughs> um, word. A lot of uh, ideas and, and themes in the show that I do on Wednesdays kind of focuses a lot yeah. on areas of systemic uh, injustice. As a matter of fact, my most recent Facebook post says, um, and, and this isn't to be uh, flippant about what has just happened in Las Vegas, but I said systemic racism is like a good sniper. The reason you don't see it is because you're not supposed to see it. Mm, and yeah. so what you were just talking about is, hey, you know what? You've got you know, people who are studying law and they're not really affected by the, the cases, no. the history of the cases, the outcomes of, of cases that are currently pending. They're not affected by it because the system is essentially set up to benefit them in a way. And so – it's really interesting because people don't see those things because it's codified and, and put it right. in su- put in place in such a way that yeah it's invi- people don't see it because it's meant to be invisible. You're not or meant to see some of these things. The thing that really bothered me was like, was like this intellectual study just removed from any emotion, mm-hmm. and it just really like 
just seeing that, I felt so isolated in that space. And I mean, luckily, I went to so I went to Michigan State for law school, and I was friends. Go green, with, yeah. Right. <laughs> kind of switch teams because it's right. like go blue with anything. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> so who are you rooting? For, who are you rooting for this weekend? Depends on who asks. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a diplomatic answer. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so what city am I in, and who's asking? All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just like the aspect of being one, like one of the only hijab wearing women in the law school. Uh-huh. There was that. But then it was also like my closest friend in law school. She's half black, half Pakistani. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind mm-hmm. of like being able to also engage with different communities. I think in undergrad, I was like very heavily focused within like the Muslim space, but it was a very like South Asian Arab Muslim space. And then from law school, it started getting to where even just my social circle was changing too. Because I grew up in the suburbs. So, I mean, that was just a reality. And I had somebody ask me that the other day where they're like, how did a girl who grew up in the suburbs end up in like this kind of work? But it really was just kind of like, I mean, one, I think also just like Malcolm X, like all these figures, it, it, they were just very personal to me mm-hmm. where I was just like, how are we reading these legal cases and how are you not like up in your chair? Like, what is this? You know, like, mm-hmm. why are we kind of celebrating mm-hmm. some of these figures as like the most brilliant minds that we should be looking up to when this is what the decision was? Like, how can we just sit there and be like, oh, OK, you know, yeah. um, and I think, too, it's like I, I was in 10th grade when 9-11 happened. And so it's like this discussion about like the war on terror and whether it's like legal. I think that division between like what's legal and what's moral, I think that has always been, I mean, interesting to me, but also a very emotional like topic. And I think that's something that a lot of people like I just found that very disturbing to me just to be able to sit in law school and just have people like, well, this is a case. Let me take my case notes and. It, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. So, so tell us about uh, Muslim Arc and and its inception. Obviously, we're seeing kind of the contours of how you got it interested in general. But tell us about Muslim Arc and and how did that uh, how did that get started and why do you think there is need for such an organization in the Muslim community? Because when I think about racism, systemic racism, uh, <clears throat> I'm generally thinking in terms of the whole outside of. Something is happening to a group from outside the group. So it seems like uh, from what I'm reading and understanding about Muslim art, uh, it's designed to look at racism within the community. So that's that's a, a different point of view that I don't think a lot of people might be used right. to hearing about. So tell us a little bit about how it got started in yeah, and the focus really, like, it's still very much within the community, but it's expanded in a couple different ways. Okay. And so the way we actually got started was on Twitter, <laughs> which okay. is why right. the Twitter handle's in there, because it's like Twitter was um, how this really happened. Uh, at that point, I'd taken the bar exam. I was waiting on my bar exam results, and I think I was, like, job searching at the time. So I was on Twitter a lot that year, basically. And there were a number of big hashtags that were happening, just went viral. This was back in 2013. And the hashtags were had a lot of participation. They were kind of Muslim-y hashtags, you know, about like Muslim women or whatever. Um, and then what ended up happening was, you know, BuzzFeed or some other like blog platform would be like the top 25 tweets you got to see or whatever. Right. Um, but the tweets that would have that would be selected out of that, be- like the mass of tweets that came in always kind of represented the South Asian Arab Mm. Muslim perspective. Um, Sometimes you'd have like a white convert perspective in there, but very little, if at all, black Muslim representation, Latino Muslim, you know, like representation. Some of these groups were just completely missing from the curated narrative, even though they were participating in the conversation like on Twitter. And so people were commenting about this and just talking about how this reflects often 
the mainstream narrative about Muslims in this country in general. Um, and it's just Twitter is like a manifestation of that. So what I ended up doing since I was unemployed and <laughs> had some time, right, uh, I pulled kind of the email addresses. I collected them from some of like the maybe the 20, 24 people who had been commenting on this like phenomenon happening and just how this needs to change. So I was like, let me email you guys. And really my only like interest in it was just, okay, let's – People were wanting to do like a hashtag conversation around this erasure. So I was like, okay, what is the hashtag conversation? Like, what's the hashtag going to be? And when is it going to be? And then at that point, I was connected with Marguerite Hill, mm. who, who we had on. That yes. She was on our episode. And so my co founder. Yeah. So my co-founder at that point, like she, somebody had suggested, like, reach out to her. Um, and so I did. And at that point, she was like, you know, a hashtag's great. <laughs> but as an educator with, you know, years of experience like can we do something a little bit more long term um you know and we we're like okay what are you thinking and she was like you know i've got some lesson plans that i've been developing to talk about racism to like an age appropriate like kids and in islamic schools and i was like well i've got graphic design background let's put together a small website three pages you know like with a little bit of information some lesson plans and then that's it you know um and then we launched being black and muslim was the hashtag we launched okay. in february and it was trending globally in seven and a half hours. Wow. Yes. And so people were just reaching out from all over. And the thing that was really fascinating to us was that the conversation, despite people coming from rural backgrounds, urban backgrounds, different ages, they're all commenting on like the same trends within the spaces that they were walking into. And we were like, clearly this suggests a more systemic issue within the Muslim space that also then reflects kind of this external context of where we live and a world kind of structured around this issue of white supremacy. So our hypothesis, and it's still like our hypothesis, is that if we can better address racial injustice within the Muslim space, which is, you know, Muslims are the most diverse faith community in the world, um, that if we can properly do it here, if we can educate, if we can train people to address these issues better with one another and also kind of come together to address them from this wider systemic lens, then we can do that anywhere in any community. So how do you um, – like white supremacy is a difficult topic for a lot of people. It's a non-starter for a lot of people. You'll get uh, certain things that are thrown out there which – the person doesn't care about. Right. I don't care about this thing. I'm just going. Well, what about you know, black on black violence? Like they don't want to talk about you know, police brutality. Mm -hmm. It's like what about that? So, so how do you how do you talk about white supremacy without alienating the people who benefit most from it? Because I think a lot of white people, especially, uh, feel like, well, you're saying I did it. You're blaming me for systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. So how do you organizationally um, approach dealing with the wider systemic racism, you know, the, the white supremacy in the culture? How do you deal with that without alienating people, without alienating people, I, I suppose? Right. And that's something that we really, I think our model is really unique in the sense that we have this like multidisciplinary approach. So when we first started, it was a very intentional decision to put together these different approaches. So for example, for us, like it's not about just dropping critical race theory onto the Muslim community, mm -hmm. because that's something that a lot of people do, right? Where they're just like, well, it's white and black. 
And we're just going to now like do an analysis that way. Whereas the Muslim community, it's not as if you I mean, there are issues in terms of white privilege within the Muslim space, but it's not as if it's like white Muslim converts or second generation or whatever. You know, white Muslims are kind of holding all of the power within the Muslim space. And therefore, it's just a white and black discussion. So based on that, we were like, okay, we need to make sure that one, we're tailoring it to the community. But then two, it is a faith based organization. So one of the things that we've really focused on is drawing from faith sources, so drawing from the Quran, drawing from the Hadith, to really discuss this issue. And Malcolm X's letter when he returned from Hajj, from the pilgrimage, Mm -hmm. talks about Mm -hmm. how Islam is the solution to the race problem in America. And the reason that he mentions that when we look back at sources, um, one of the verses that we really talk about a lot and kind of is the underpinning for a lot of our workshops is verse 4913. And so that verse, um, it says that you know, we, as in the royal we, God, created us in nations and tribes so that we may know one another. And that has underpinned all of what we do, is this idea of knowing one another in in not just superficial ways, but in understanding the entire context that goes into that. So we often talk about the the reality of dehumanization, and that's where, like, my background in I've worked in war crimes like uh, prosecution and with, with the UN, um, and it's just that aspect of dehumanization, how does that happen, where you see somebody as lesser than human? They're just not human anymore. And you have that as such a fundamental like part of racism as a whole, mm-hmm. that it's like, how can we know one another in ways that are, you know, either tied, for example, like that, uh, that the seer, like the commentary in that verse talks about knowing one another as in doing business together, or traveling together. And you really get to know somebody very differently mm-hmm. if you're traveling with them or doing yep. business with them, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, looking at that, looking at certain tools that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, implemented um, during his time in terms of like interracial marriage, uh, in terms of putting a young black man in in charge of his finances as a treasurer when he's so young, he's not coming from one of these like, um, you know, noble tribes kind of thing. And it's you have these instances that happened then that would be considered pretty radical now sometimes, you know, by even people within the Muslim space. And so it's like looking at all of this, like how can we approach it in a much more human um, interconnect in this way, but then also bring in that analysis? Because Mm -hmm. fundamentally, this idea is also rooted in our understanding of race as fundamental arrogance. And so we often talk about that, the story of Iblis or the devil kind of refusing to bat onto Adam when God commanded him to because, oh, you made him out of clay and you made me out of fire. So I'm not going to bat onto him. And for that, God kicked him out of heaven, right? Like, that's the understanding that we have. And so when we think about that, we're like, okay, this is an issue of arrogance, that somebody feels superior to somebody else because they were created a different way, because none of us have control over our race or ethnicity. And given that arrogance is seen as one of, like, the worst sins that you could have within the Muslim space, and in general, right, people, arrogance is not healthy, right? And so we approached it from that angle, too, of, like, hey, do you have concern for yourself? Because you will be asked about this issue later. It's not as if you can just think that, hey, I can just be racist all my life. And then, you know, if you believe in hereafter, if you believe that there is a life after this, that you're not going to be held accountable for that. So you have a self-interest in figuring this out Hmm. and in making sure that you are standing for justice. There's such a strong like social justice ethos within the faith 
um, that we that's really why especially we started out within the Muslim space because we're like it's all here you know it's just we need to have more education and training that's accessible to people and to put it in ways that are you know this kind of unique mix of things so people can understand it differently and we've had a lot of non-Muslim interest in it just because I think of our approach um, from that aspect of getting to know one another and then standing for justice once we do know each other better. Now, you just had an event recently in Detroit um, that I wanted you to talk about. And also kind of um, do you, you know, is and why do you think Detroit is kind of a uniquely perfect fit for kind of the birthplace of Muslim art? Yeah. So our event was um, called Detroit Anti-Racism Training. So it was the DART conference. And it's the first time we did it here in Detroit. We've done it in Southern California twice before this. Um, but it was a one day training. And so in the morning we had like these plenary sessions with like two panels, um, some faith reflections to open up. We had somebody who was indigenous who pro- provided like an indigenous spiritual perspective on racial justice work. And then in the afternoon we moved to workshops. So it was like skills building. And we try to always provide some kind of like um, tangible action that people can take uh, when they walk away from one of our trainings. And then at the end, we had like an award ceremony and we really recognized some of the work that's happening here in here in Michigan. Um, but Detroit is really just from growing up here. Um, and it's, you know, we're one of the most segregated cities in the country. And you see that reflected within the Muslim space, too. We've got Dearborn. Mm-hmm. We also have Detroit, right? And like the, the history of the Nation of Islam, as well as uh, Hamtramck. So you've got the first Muslim majority city council in the country with Bengalis and Yemenis sitting on that city council. Um, and so you have this region that's not very far, right? Like sometimes I'm just like compared to LA traffic, especially whenever I head out there, I'm like, yeah, Detroit, like you got Detroit to Lansing one hour and you have such diversity. Um, you have people who are really thriving in that diversity, but then you just don't have people who don't know each other. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that really, it's both humbling, but also kind of blew me away was that when we started doing Muslim Mark's work, I would have, you know, groups of people where we all grew up in Michigan. We were all born, some of us like born and raised in Michigan, and yet we were meeting each other for the first time. And it's within just the Muslim space that this is happening. So you see it reflected just in the broader space too. And it's just been really amazing uh, to see that where it's like, you know, for us to be able to come together across uh, a multi-faith, multi-ethnic lines to work on this issue of racial justice especially has been really powerful. And for DART, like we did some um, review of like the attendees and it was like 36 percent non-Muslim was in the crowd and you had multiple you know, racial, ethnic backgrounds in the room. Um, And I think, you know, if we can get that right, like I think that puts us in a good place to address these systemic inequalities. And, and wow. so what are <clears> – <throat> in terms of addressing uh, some of these issues, what are the, what are the main challenges you find in addressing, in addressing the issues within the, the Muslim community? I think what you touched on earlier, which is that some people do benefit more, right, from kind of being able to buy into the um, white supremacist kind of um, – the benefits that come with the system. So we deal a lot with the model minority issue um you know mm, and yeah. i can deal with that i think that's one of the things that so you know, define that for people yeah you sure. say model minority and just gloss right over right. People are like, wait what what's that <laughs> i don't know what that is yeah so the idea of the model minority is that we are you know certain groups of minorities or people who are non-white are kind of the good minorities so the, we're the ones who work the hardest and we're the most educated and okay. we're good citizens 
And it's always done in contrast to black and Latino youth and adults, right? So who's assimilated better, essentially? Basically. Okay. And assimilated to not just like American ways, but especially the white, like the idea of whiteness. Yes, absolutely. So that's, that's one of the things that you see a lot with like Asians, for example. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. whether South Asians or East Asians, but it's like, oh, look, they don't cause any trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they're good in school. They do their job. They're well off. You know, they're, look at them. You know, yeah. why can't you be like that? Yeah, so that's yeah, that the idea. The African American community too, because it's, uh, the house Negro versus the field Negro, like the, right. like when people talk to me, like oh, why do you talk that way? You're so educated. My wife is white. Like mm-hmm. oh, you know, you're proximity to whiteness, and you've given up your race, and you're the house Negro who's got the privileges because mm-hmm. he's close to the master. Mm-hmm. And then us field Negroes out here, you know, we're right. struggling to get by. I mean, it's a obviously throwback to. Slave days, but that particular image still persists. So that's interesting. Okay. And I think that's one of the things that we've talked about too is kind of like looking at how a lot of this, like the way things are set up, are rooted in anti blackness, right? Mm -hmm. It's like model minority. It completely ties into um, kind of these issues. And for that, it's like, since certain people are model minorities, it's like, well, they are celebrated, right? And it's like, if, if we kind of embrace that narrative of being these good immigrants compared, to other people, I mean, that kind of continually reinforces the system. And so based on that, it's like, you know, for us to, for example, even just checking some of the language around what it means to be American, right? So sometimes we'll see certain things happen and it's like, this is so un-American. And it's like, okay, but which America are we talking about? You know, if we're talking about an America where all these systemic injustices have been built into the system um, as a legal um, philosophy a lot of times is this really un-American? You know, mm-hmm. doesn't this really yeah, track this with a, what's this happened? Is, this is so, about as American as it gets when you yeah, think about it. Yeah, and so know. even just that, like, and in, in, in terms of certain people, like, you know, the the idea of, like, this narrative that comes through whiteness of, well, this is un-American, you know, kind of the good liberal white narrative about what America stands for. When Muslims are repeating that, especially Muslims who are, like, South Asian or Arab, um, white liberal media tends to reward it, right, and center those Muslims mm-hmm. in ways that a Muslim who was speaking in a different way, who was kind of t- picking up like where Malcolm X was talking about, that might not be rewarded as much. So even things like that, it's like certain people are personally benefiting. And I don't say that there's like no benefit for Muslims because there is like this kind of PR thing that's being done right now to try and like put forth a positive image of Muslims given all the uh, demonization that we do face in the media. But given all of this, there are concerns where for us, it's like if you center the issue of racial justice, you're going to be talking in a whole different way, Hmm. no matter what you're doing. Um, And I think that really is sometimes a challenge for people because they're like, but this is working, you know, like we're getting this narrative into the mainstream. Look, this is really helping the image of Muslims in the mainstream. You know, why can't we do this? And it's like, well, we can, but let's like flip it a little bit. Let's let's massage it a little bit. Let's recontextualize some of what we're saying so that we're standing firm on principles and not just about like what's getting us good PR. So that's Mm -hmm. been one challenge. I think the other thing is like, you know, within the Muslim space, for example, the the liquor stores, I mean, that's been an issue that's come up repeatedly where it's like Arab and Muslim owned liquor stores in inner city neighborhoods. Um, 
our upcoming banquet that we have the speaker that's coming, uh, Dr. Rami Nishashibi, is out with Iman, so the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago. And they had a campaign where they work specifically on targeting some of these liquor store owners and getting them to turn their liquor stores into grocery stores to help with the food desert situation in, in, in the inner cities. So that's something where we're like, see, this is like a way where if we're educating on it, we can deal with some of these like systemic where some of these model minorities especially are holding up systemic injustice instead of like helping just facilitate the system. Um, But it means that certain people like they're having to make adjustments in their lives. But we always try to remind people like, are you working for like the dunya? So like, are you working for this life or are you working for the hereafter? Um, Because if you're working for the hereafter, then whatever loss you might face here, that's worth it, right? You're not not really losing in in working this way. I'd be interested... Something you said just stuck out to me, the, especially the, the grocery store, the food desert thing uh, in, in Detroit, because conversations going on with the African-American community, that tends to be, I guess, looked down upon. Like, OK, there's grocery stores, there's Whole Foods out in the suburbs, and then in our neighborhood, it's gun store, gun store, liquor store, gun store, mm-hmm. and, and that's pretty much it. But when you start to talk um, – but then you're still going to go to the corner store. You're still going to go to the corner store. You're still going to go to the you know the liquor store. You're going to grab, you know, some hot food. You're going to grab, you know, food that's not food, food like substances. That's a totally different podcast. But um, <laughs> one of the conversations within the African American community surrounding that is why don't we own these? Right. Right. And so, are there any conversations? In terms of going into uh, that, you know about. I don't know. You might not know, uh, but going in and targeting these uh, these liquor stores, trying to get them to become grocery stores. Are there any conversations about black ownership of of those rather than you know? You said Arab and and where else are people? I mean, think? in general, I think it comes. I mean, you have South Asian owners too, Asian but it owners, is yeah. heavily like Arab Middle Eastern. Yeah, which yeah. is which is in, it's interesting for a lot of black people because there's this, this angst like. Why there's a corner store? We don't have any uh, economic, you know, self determination here. It's right? Like, why why right, is everything exactly. owned by everybody mm-hmm. else? Why don't we mm-hmm. own anything? And so that's just kind of a fascinating thing. So I'm wondering, are there any conversations around that when going in and targeting and saying, hey, maybe we should some grocery stores? And I'm not talking about putting an orange on the counter and saying, hey, we got a fruit section now, <laughs> we got a produce section now. But I mean, actually, you know, offering you know, right. actual the the food groups. Right. And that's something based on that, the idea of self-determination. I mean, Muslim Arc, it's like for us, part of the work, especially this year that we've been expanding to as we're coming up on four years, um, is to work on leadership development within the black space, mostly because it's like you can't you have to address that. And there's um, a lack of resources and doors opened for certain people. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially for for black um, Muslims, but also non-Muslims. And you see this where it's just even like who gets access to certain opportunities and leadership development, business opportunities. You see that there is like the systemic issue with that. Um, so based on that, we were like, this also needs to be part of any racial justice work is that development um, and business opportunities and all of that. Um, the, the conversation hasn't completely centered specifically around like liquor store businesses. <laughs> right, right. But it, in general, it just stuck like, out to me yeah, it, no, so. in general, though, that principle is completely true. It's like, is it really at the end of the day, like who owns the businesses and who's actually being able to invest within the community? Um, and when there's kind of because of these systemic inequalities, when there's this lack of opportunity or access to opportunity, 
I mean, of, of course, there's going to be like this vacuum, right, that people step into. Right. And right now it's like convenient to the system to have model minorities step into that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like how do we deal with this long term? And part of it is like moving to things that are uniting people instead of actually trying to pick communities where one is continuously just exploiting and extracting resources from one community. Okay. Um, you know, it's like where is that money going? How is that beneficial? And at the end of the day, like are we facing moral bankruptcy? So – yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really important conversation because we try to put it to people where we're trying to educate them overall and then letting them kind of figure out for themselves what the best course of action is. Um, so I don't know if we'd necessarily like what position we would take on it. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, black leadership development is crucial to this work. Okay. And actually, um, Muslim Mark just acquired kind of a home yes, recently. And it kind of yeah. um, speaks yeah, to kind of what you're talking Twitter, about. Huh? I know. That's <laughs> exactly. Actually, that's exactly what we're, we've been so like, I've just been blown away by it really is that after like three and a half years, we're coming up four years in February. So it's like after three and a half years, we are, we just bought a house <laughs> in Northwest Detroit okay. and it's near the Muslim center. And this is part of that whole idea of like black led development because it's a house that's under, um, Druma Detroit. So Druma Detroit, you know, is a uh, community-led initiative where they're near the Muslim yeah, Center. Crane actually from Druma Detroit in a few weeks. Oh, awesome! Okay, so he can talk more about it because I know his pitch from <laughs> Druma Detroit is better than mine. But um, but Dream, they have this neighborhood, uh, the Limo Davison area, and you've got these houses that you know were hit. These neighborhoods were hit pretty hard by the foreclosure crisis and all of that. So we bought one of the houses, and we just are starting the process of rehabbing the house. Okay, um, and that's going to be our physical headquarters. So well, after- if you need help, call me. I got a gazillion tools. He's <laughs> gotten really good at you. this. Okay, re- good to know. I've gotten really good at it. I'm not even kidding. I, I've, got, like, I've yeah, finished everything. rehabbing a house and I'm like, what am I going to do with all these tools I bought now? They're just sitting in a corner. <laughs> well, yep, so, now you know. Yeah. Did, like yeah. a patio from scratch yeah. and like... Wow, okay. Yeah. Okay, yep, we'll need to talk. But okay. absolutely, I mean, that's kind of the... For us, it's like fulfilling our dream of Detroit, you know, but really it's this idea that the center is going to be a, I mean, one, it's a house. So it's this idea of a community home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's going to be a training space so we can do trainings and workshops there and a, a community event space for the basement space. We want to use that for like discussion circles and things like that. And then also just a place for us to do our operations out of because we don't have an office right now. So it's like our, our offices. Um, but we do have like a gala coming up on November 18th. Uh, we just confirmed the right center. Uh, or the right museum mm-hmm. for our venue. And so that's coming up. Wow. So we're going to try and raise, we're starting like a crowdfunding campaign next week, actually. And then we're going to try and raise the rest of the money okay. at the gala uh, to get this rehabbed and that's ready to open. Friday night, right? It's a Saturday. Saturday, Saturday yeah. night. Okay. No, yep. All right. Yay. All right. So um, just before we kind of wrap up here, Namira, I think it's interesting um, also just kind of your background. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of speaks to a lot of um, your passion and your work. Being... Um, of Bung- uh, Bengali background, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe maybe most of our listeners might not know that much about Southeast Asian right. um, history, but um, I think that kind of speaks to kind of your passion for social justice, um, civil rights, as you mentioned. And I know that we've kind of talked about this, but even um, I'm sure I know a lot of values that your parents and specifically that your dad instilled right. in you too. Right. Um, and I don't know if you want to say anything about that because yeah. I know that no, I think it you is. lost your father a few years ago. Yes. Yeah. So it's been two years as of this July. Um, 
And I think that that's also been like a fascinating conversation because when we think about like the black white paradigm, we don't get to really explore these nuances within Asian mm-hmm. and Middle Eastern and you know all these different backgrounds. So I think for me, like as somebody who grew up hearing about, you know, my parents were kids and teenagers when the war for the liberation war happened. And it was this idea about, you know, injustice happening at a systemic level and East Pakistan and West Pakistan and, and representation and democracy and all this stuff. And so just seeing like having that kind of run through um, the family bl- like bloodline really is like to, to think about liberation and revolution, especially in positive ways and in ways that are building community in different ways, but also like exposing some of these tensions too. Mm-hmm. I think that does have, you know, it just brought me in in a interesting vantage point, I think, for these intra-community discussions. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with you there. I just put up something about, I mean, I think this whole conversation about colorism and what we deal with in yes. our own communities <laughs> is something I really Ooh. enjoy talking Absolutely. about. That's a whole other show. Yes, it is. <laughs> Come on my show and talk about that. We'll talk about colorism Yeah, sure. we definitely have it from our fair and lovely creams to our comments Absolutely. from our aunties. And for me, um, you know, I've got daughters and just my experience growing up and it's like I'm actively de-brainwashing and yes redefining unlearning Mm -hmm. redefining beauty um and and actually in when people i mean elders kind of make comments about you know one daughter's skin color or like Mm -hmm. something about oh you shouldn't like we had a family wedding oh you shouldn't have let her go in the sun a few weeks before and i'm like i really love her skin color and i'll just like this is really really expanding my viewpoint because i think it's easy for me to get myopic because i i focus primarily on african-american issues and colorism within the Mm african-american community is like a big thing let's talk about that african-american but it's easy because i focus on that to think this is only happening Mm -hmm. to us it's really interesting to hear that this is happening absolutely other communities that's as well. why I just you know, right. I just love being able to come together and have these conversations mm-hmm. across lines because I mean the system right now it also pits us apart intentionally yep right? absolutely it's yeah. built that way yes. yep absolutely wow well thank you so much Namira I really thank enjoyed this conversation um, and thank you Calvin for making it out here this Friday hey no problem um, as well um, very valuable conversation um, on so many levels um, just even from what inspires you and what you know what makes you, what, what you're passionate about from a from a, from a young adult student mm-hmm. and kind of what drives you to um you know what paths you're going to take in life i think that we've talked a lot about that this past um uh hour or so um so thank you so much for being here and um i wish you so much luck with muslim arc i'm so was so happy to hear about the house and so the excited, home yeah. <laughs> and um your upcoming gala and i hope they'll be make it be able to make it to that um but Really, really happy for you, and um, really happy that we're a small part of that, and able, able, you know, help you spread the word about this amazing work that you guys we are really doing. Really appreciate it, and open invite to anybody who's listening to come Yay. visit once you open our doors. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I'm going to be helping them build it, so definitely yeah. come, come see some <laughs> of my work. Yeah, work. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, and to our listeners, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Unsung Heroes. And again, please, um, you know, check out our Facebook page. We're working on a web page. Um, we're on Instagram now, um, and. If I can ask you a favor, please leave us a review on iTunes because that really helps. And um, I actually have no idea like how many people are listening who's listening. But it's really fun because mm-hmm. like, I went to a birthday party a few weeks ago for my daughter and I met this other mom. And, and um, hi, Sana. And she was like, I actually kind of know you. I listened to your podcast. And I was like, wow, Aww. really? <laughs> That's so cool. So, um, so please amazing. leave us a review. Let us know you're listening. Um, and um, join us next time for another episode of Unsung Heroes. Thanks, everybody.